All right, join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Our one and others have led us to this letter from Paul to the church at Thessalonica. And a couple of our one and others here are in the context of what we would theologically label as the second coming. Last time we were in chapter 4, in verse 18, the last verse of the chapter, which after a paragraph about the coming of the Lord, and at that coming, a resurrection of those who have died, and then those who are alive join with those who have been resurrected, and we are with the Lord. And the conclusion is, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And we look at that word encourage, it's broadly used, it can be comfort if you're sorrowing, it can be cheering somebody on if they're doing a good job uh, with the basketball tournament underway, you see these coaches roaming up and down the sideline yelling out instructions, uh, that's, uh, that's the spirit of this word, to come alongside and to be calling out, those two Words together form this Greek word, which here is used as encourage. Um, and we saw that the encouragement of this paragraph is that even when we grieve, verse 13, we grieve with a hope that these things are true. The encouragement is that Jesus is coming again. Uh, the encouragement is he will resurrect those who have died in the faith. The encouragement is even those of us who are still alive will be with the Lord. So everything about this paragraph is designed to encourage us, even though these things haven't happened yet. Well, Paul continues this theme on into chapter 5. And if you jump to verse 11 at the end of this opening paragraph, you see a similar verse. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Same word in our English Bible and in the Greek. Uh, so it's the same word for encouragement, for uh, comfort, for coaching, for being a legal advocate of someone. Uh, and then it adds to that build one another up as well. So two words that take your actions and your speaking of truth to help somebody else, to stabilize them, to build them up, to help them down the path, uh, to coach them, as it were. But we want to look at the context now in chapter 5, uh, because our verse begins with that word, therefore, encourage one another. Therefore, come alongside and speak truth. What's the therefore Therefore, right. Um, and so we look back and let's begin at chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers. Now, interestingly, we'll see that expression in our text in the morning sermon in Acts. The times and the seasons. Uh, and both in Acts and here, we see it's in this context of what is God going to do? He's talked about this coming, this resurrection, uh, being with the Lord. Now concerning those times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He's going to go on, but note that Paul and Jesus is going to say the same thing in Acts chapter 1. Paul's saying, listen, you, you, don't, you don't need to even spend your time thinking about it. Like, there, there's nothing more that you need here. Uh, you, you don't need to be a reader of signs. You don't need to be a discerner of uh, world events. You don't have to study the newspaper and try to find it in Daniel or Revelation. You, you don't have to worry about it. You, you, I'm not telling you any more. And not because I know and you don't and, or you can't handle this. It's because... You have everything you need with what you are told. And this is what he says they can know for sure. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord. Now that's a common expression, especially in the prophets. Yet 
here we're putting it in the context of this very letter and this part of the letter where he's talking about the coming, the resurrection, the being with the Lord. So that day of the Lord, uh, this is kind of a final day of the Lord uh, because there have been many of them. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, how is that true? Verse 3, while people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So let me ask you this. Is it Christians that are saying peace and security and then when the Lord comes, they are suddenly destroyed? Well, no, obviously not. So that's one experience that will happen on this day of the Lord. There is a certain group of people that are going to be completely caught off guard. It will be as if a thief came and broke in while you were gone or in the night. Now, has anybody ever had a thief in your home while you were there at night? Anybody ever heard a door rattle or glass break or something? I read about these stories in... NRA magazine, and I'm always thinking, man, what kind of neighborhoods do these people live in? Looks like this happens all the time. Um, anybody ever had a thief break into your house while you weren't there? Oh, man. What? That's like half our families represented in Sunday school. So um, you, you all probably have some stories to share about how disconcerting that is to realize somebody was in your home and plundering it. Uh, so that's the expression here. Some of you understand it. And yet that whole thief in the night, which is a common phrase, we're, we're familiar with it. There's an old movie, I think, called A Thief in the Night about the second coming or the, the more the rapture, as they would say it, um, that would kind of stir up all this fear. Well, just remember from the text here that the, the, the coming of the Lord as it comes like a thief in the night is for those who are saying, everything's fine, peace and security, I'm good, and yet they're suddenly destroyed in that day of the Lord. They will not escape. Now look at verse 4. It begins with that key word of transition, but. So whatever was just said is going to stand in stark contrast to what comes after, but you are not in darkness. Well, Where have we heard about darkness? Why is he saying, why is the contrast darkness when he hasn't even used that word yet? It's because everything in verse 3 is describing the darkness. What it means to be in darkness, to be blinded by the God of this world. Um, You are not in darkness, comma, brothers, speaking now to the church. For those who are unbelievers... The coming of the Lord is is like a thief coming in the night and they're shocked, they're stunned, they can't believe this. And worse, they're destroyed. But for you, brothers, for that day to surprise you, or you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So you're not caught off guard. It's not a devastating realization to you. Why? For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. And that's not a reference to they only get drunk with alcohol when it's dark outside. Remember, night now is is this contrast to we are of the day. We are in the light, they are in the darkness of night. So the realm of darkness, unbelief, is this realm of sleeping, is the sense of we're good. I, you know, it's the parable of the rich man. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones because everything's going to be great. I've got it all under control. Peace and security. But it's darkness in their lives. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What what does that mean, hope of salvation? Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're living or having died in the faith, we might live with him, as he told us at the end of chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So, mark this text for your understanding of end times. The day of the Lord is coming, and when the Lord appears, the unbelievers who are in darkness, who thought they were fine, are going to realize the devastation of not being ready. The day of the Lord. And they're surprised by it. They're judged on that day. They're suddenly destroyed, it says. But for you who are sons and daughters of God, to you, brothers, to you, the church, that same day of the Lord, when he destroys the unbelievers and takes them off guard, is the day which you are looking for. You're watching for it. We are of the day, and we're sober, and we're watching, the text says. So the second coming is never used to dis- describe the believer's experience as shock and awe, and I, I, I wasn't ready, and he came like a thief in the night. No, that's for the unbeliever. For us, it's like knowing companies coming for d- Sunday lunch, and so you get home quick and start setting the table, but you got your eye out the window because you're waiting for them to pull up. You're going to greet them at the door. Um, there's an expectation, there's, there's a readiness that is described. So we keep awake and we're sober because we're not unbelievers. We're believing and we're encouraging one another and we're looking for the coming. Not always because we're fed up with this life, but sometimes that's a reason for it. Sometimes in the scriptures you see those saying, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm ready to move on, Paul says. I'm ready to go home and be with the Lord, but he's telling me I need to stay here and carry out this ministry. Um, Other times, life is good, and we are blessed, and we might not be saying, I just want this to end and get on with heaven, but the reality is, by faith, we are expecting Christ to come again. And so, in this text, there is one day of the Lord... Don't think of many days, a day when he does this, a day when he resurrects, a day when he comes again, a day when he judges believers. No, John 4 and now 1 Thessalonians 5 are telling us there's one day when all of this happens that we kind of have out there in end times. Uh, The believers and the unbelievers will be completely impacted by the second coming. Um, And so... While you may see it differently, I would challenge a position of a partial coming or a rapture where Jesus comes and does some of this, but then he doesn't do the rest of it. Because Paul's point is, no, that day of the Lord, which I described in chapter 4, when believers are pulled out of the graves and the living believers meet the Lord in the air, that day of the Lord, he says, is going to shock the unbelievers and he'll judge them. And yet that day to us is that welcome day that we have hoped for. And our hope isn't just that Jesus comes, it's it's who the Jesus is that is coming. Because remember, it tells us we've put on this hope of salvation, which is defined as God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the second coming is this doorway to, a word tied to our verb here, to our destiny. Now usually destiny becomes kind of a weird colloquial usage of, you know, some kind of fatalistic end. But the word in the text here is clear. God has not destined us for wrath, but he has steered us on a path. He has put us on a path. He has ordained a path for us that ends in salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That's how that salvation was accomplished. And that means whether we are awake or asleep, back to chapter 4, whether we are still living or whether we have died in our faith in Christ, all of us are going to live with him. 
And so we encourage one another. We build each other up. We, we, we keep pointing to that hope of salvation. Uh, when, when someone's discouraged because they, you know, lost their temper at home and they were a, a, a bad parent, you remind them of what the scriptures tell us. Remember, Christ died for you. And so that sin has been paid for. So let's be encouraged. He's coming again. So get back in there and, and strive for holiness. Um, live the righteous life that the Holy Spirit produces in us. We, we encourage, we build up based on the truth that Christ died for us. We're on this path. Our home is heaven. Encourage one another and build one another up. A lot there in those passages in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. But just know that wherever we go in wrestling through end times and how Jesus comes, does he come at a rapture and then a second coming or is it just one coming? That's fine. I'm happy to discuss that stuff and and pry into the scriptures and see what it means and is one of those views better than the other. But just remember, the point of those texts in our Bibles is always to point Christians to readiness. Not to a confidence in your position like, I know better, this is how it all ends. That's just not the point of the text. The point of the text is be ready and... As you can see in both verses 18 and chapter 5, verse 11, to be looking around at each other and saying, hey, we have hope. We can do this. This pilgrim journey is hard, but look where it ends. And, and, you know, read the Bible and then read an illustration that Bunyan gives us in Pilgrim's Progress. And remember, the celestial city awaits uh, the city of our God, and, and we're, we're going somewhere. That's our home. That's our hope. Uh, so encourage one another. A lot of times we, we see that encourage one another with these words, encourage one another and build one another up, and we think, how do I do that with all these debates about end times? Well, you don't encourage each other with the nuances of the debate. You encourage each other with the bedrock foundation of the debate. Jesus is coming uh, and therein lies our hope. Any questions there? Any eschatological questions or encourage one another questions? Yes, that's what John says, even so come Lord Jesus. And certainly, uh, if you're a news watcher, uh, you should probably stamp the hope of Christ's coming on every reading of the news or every watching of it to remind you that uh, the Lord's got this under control. All right, let's look over to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins with one of the better arguments, or I could say one of the arguments in Hebrews that speaks of something better, and that being Jesus is a better or greater prophet than even Moses was. Moses as this rescuer, savior figure. Moses as a speaker and prophet of truth figure. Moses as a ruler leader figure, and yet as good as Moses was and as significant as he is to Israel's history, there is one better than Moses, and that is uh, the servant of God, Jesus the Christ. And then in the second paragraph, beginning in verse 7, we're reminded of past events. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test And saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, we're familiar with those years in the wilderness. It started really days after the exodus from Egypt. Uh, 
they had just seen ten plagues devastate Egypt, and as if a miraculous wall was built between the Egyptians and the Israelites, the plagues didn't affect them. Not even the blinding, weighty darkness of the complete absence of light uh, affected the Israelites. And the text reminds us of that in a couple of the plagues. They had just come to the, the edge of the waters and saw the dust cloud of the Egyptians chasing them, forgot about the God of the plagues and panicked for a moment. And God says, no, just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And Moses just lifts up his staff and the seas part and they go through on dry land in the next morning. They cross over. They see the Egyptians pursuing. The waters drown the Egyptians. And the end of chapter 14, the beginning of Exodus 15, some of their bodies wash up on the shore as, as a reminder, as a testament that God will deal with his enemies while he saves his people. It's what we saw in Thessalonians they don't get but a couple of weeks into the wilderness and they're demanding that they turn back and go enjoy the, all the great success and prosperity of Egypt that they had, thinking God's led them into the wilderness to kill them. And it just happens again and again and again until we have this kind of summary conclusion here that Hebrews 3 gives us of the hardness of their hearts, their rebellion, their testing of God, uh, God is provoked with that generation. Their hearts always go astray. They have not known my ways. And so God swore in his wrath, they would not enter rest, meaning rest as the promised land. And we know the story. All those 20 and older, or I guess, was it 21 and older? Was it 20 and younger that survived? I don't remember the, which direction 20 goes with. I think it was 20 and younger, that generation would live on, but all those older than that would die in the wilderness. They would not enter the promised land, the rest. So we're reminded of that story, and now verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But... Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should, would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were, not, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is a hard passage. It clearly tells us what to do. Brothers, take care. Exercise caution. Give real attention to this, lest there be in you any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. That's our one another. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The, the, the hardship of this text is that he's clearly speaking to those who identify as brothers, to the church. Take care, brothers. Exhort one another. Go after any deceitfulness, any sin that could be harbored away. And then speaking to those that he counts as brothers, he says, or else you may be led to fall away from the living God. And then he explains that as those who heard the voice of God, those who came out of Egypt having seen the plagues, those who saw God provide in the wilderness, wilderness 
yet they died in unbelief and did not enter God's rest. So the warning here is is weighty because he's speaking to the church, those who identify as believers, and yet he's saying there may be some of you who, who, if you do not give attention to the word, may not make heaven's shores. You say, well, doesn't this just create fear and panic in, in Christians? No, it shouldn't. Not, a, not if that sealing of the Holy Spirit is there and in Romans 8 is confirming to you that you are a child of God. Not if there are the works of righteousness that First John unfolds, that you pass these tests, you can see the love of God in your life. You can see your confessing of sin. You can see your faith in Jesus. You can see your love for the brothers. There are ways to to war against that fear and doubt about the assurance of our salvation. But as much as the Bible is strong on giving that assurance of salvation, it is strong on on shaking the cage, so to speak, on rattling this self kind of confidence that seems to exist even in the absence of righteous living. Because here are these Israelites who could set up the tabernacle and move and go to the next place and bring their sacrifices to the priests and generally function by the law because they don't want to get stoned outside of the camp. And yet the conclusion is they died in unbelief. They never entered the rest that was found in God's promise of salvation. So take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, we don't, we don't look into a crystal ball and find out who this is. We don't look into a crystal ball to see if this is ourselves. What we do is exhort one another daily. There is the remedy. And the goal of that is that no one would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's being hardened by sin, which I think makes perfect sense to all of us. But the text is clear that we're speaking about a hardness that comes by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, this is sin that is, that is kind of invading our lives and, and we're not aware of it. We don't have a keen eye to it. But the hope is that by God's design in the body, there is exhortation. People are seeing, you know, hey, I, can I, could I just give you a, a little advice on dealing with your child from what I saw at church last week? But how many of us would immediately break out brick and mortar and start building up a wall, right? Whoa, whoa, self-defense. Like, no, I'm a good parent. Well, the person isn't saying you're not. They're doing what the scripture says. They're exhorting you. Because they don't know if you might fall away if you don't respond to that truth. So, well, he's talking about parenting. But if it's God's word on parenting and you don't want to hear God's word or God's principle from that person standing in the lobby, what makes you think you're a Christian? If you don't want to deal with the deceitfulness of sin, if if that annoys you that someone would think you're not perfect, what makes you think that you've, you've been arrested by the grace of God and been humbled and repentant of your sin and that you're longing for holiness no matter where that exhortation would come from. You see, the warning is, is to the church and it's not, it's not just oh, make sure you're saved and pray the prayer again because no matter how many times you pray and ask God to save you, that won't matter in the day of judgment. What will matter is, is Jesus Lord of your life? Are you living in such a way that reflects he's in charge, that holiness matters? Is the spirit at work in producing the righteousness? Yes, we pray and we can cry out and we can ask God to save and forgive. 
But I think we all know that just saying words won't make the difference because our text is clear. Our text picked out the the most spiritual people that have existed, the people of God, as they were called, and yet says hundreds and thousands of them died in unbelief and did not enter the promised land. So be very careful to not ignore the Spirit's prompting to exhort one another. And then be very careful that you don't reject hearing that exhortation when it comes from others. It's almost like we need to have a practice Sunday, right? And, you know, just line up in the lobby instead of greeting and handshaking, just nitpick at everything you don't like about that person. (laughs) And just get used to someone coming up to us and saying, hey, you know, could you change this? (laughs) And maybe we'd get better at it. Maybe, Maybe it wouldn't be so offensive that someone would think I'm not perfect. You ever notice somebody with something stuck in your te- their teeth and you don't, you don't know how to tell them? Because like, you think they're going to be embarrassed and you're going to think you sound like you were fixated on it, which you clearly are because you're thinking about it. It just shows us we, we, we want to present well. We don't want our hair sticking up in the back because you know, we didn't look in the mirror good enough. We don't want any imperfection or flaw. We don't want somebody thinking we're not a good husband or a good wife. We don't someone want someone thinking we're a bad parent. Fact of the matter is, you you could be the best parent in this room, you know, and you're diligent, you're faithful, and you're patient, and your kid gets in the Sunday school class and cuts loose with evil, right? And you're like, what in the world? Like, they never do that. What do you do? Hear the exhortation and just just receive the love from people. And as much as we can think lightly of it this morning, the reality is the next time someone comes, you're going to feel that welling up of defensiveness and justification and establishing it's not always this way, and it's just hard. Um, That's the pride that deceitfully sneaks into our lives. Just know in this this weighty text, the, the solution isn't, complicated. It's real simple. Just help each other be aware of sin. And when you see someone starting to wander in their thinking, in their words, in their actions, you just remind them, hey, hey, I'm just trying to give a word of exhortation here. If I'm off base, then that's fine, but I'm just trying to help. Uh, And you speak up. And, And the text says, we do this, we exhort one another every day. Every day. The implication is you need truth coming into your head every day. So if your spouse is doing that for you, don't let it grate on you. Don't don't believe the devil's lie when he says, oh, they think they're better than you. What if they're just trying to get this right? You say, well, they need to hear it too. Well, are you saying anything? Is the word of Christ dwelling in you richly so that it pours out on them? Like, this is supposed to be mutual. I understand that. But exhort one another every day as it's called today that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The hard thing about the deceitfulness of sin is we are, that, you know, we use that expression self-deceived. Well, if you're self-deceived, you don't know it, right? That's inherent in the idea of self-deceived. So receive it as God's grace in your life when someone else says, man, I think you're off on this. It's, it's almost like you go and you, you tap on the compass of your heart and think, what, what was the matter with that thing? I was pointing south and it's supposed to be pointing north. Like, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. I, I needed that. Something had gotten off. Maybe if that happened every day, we'd, we'd get more accustomed to saying thank you and readjusting and moving on instead of arguing and debating whether the compass is really off. No, just hear it, receive it, and move on. Um, and that seems to be the remedy there uh, because you keep correcting and getting back on course. The Bible calls that repentance. So you just keep repenting and, and you keep 
hating sin and you keep loving what's right. And sometimes you didn't even really notice that you were drifting into a sinful or worldly mindset and someone corrects it and you turn and you get on track. That, that's that life of repentance that characterizes the believer. That's not the life that characterized these people of Israel as this history lesson unfolds in Hebrews chapter 3. So mark that text uh, because it's twofold. You giving exhortation to help others get it right and you receiving their exhortation. And note the word here is exhort, harsher word, uh, but it's the same word parakaleo of coming alongside and speaking truth. Um, In our Thessalonians text, in the context of the struggle of death and the hardship of life and Christ is coming, it's translated as encourage. Because like the coach on the sidelines, sometimes he's not scolding as much as encouraging. He's trying to lift up somebody that, you know, missed an obvious shot or an easy play and, and they're kind of down on themselves and he's trying to encourage them. Other times, he's kind of red in the face and he's got his hand on his hip and he's pointing at the feet court or the field and he's calling down instruction. This is the way it needs to be. And so here, the same word, which could be very much a comforting word, is a strong word of exhortation. That's how truth works. God's truth will will meet us in all of our need. God's truth through other people will meet us in all of our need. So receive the encouragement at times, and at others, it's here, exhortation. A, A more pointed word, but it's the same process, coming alongside and speaking truth. Hebrews chapter 3. Let's look over at Hebrews 10. Similar text. And yet it gives us a little bit more of a context of this exhortation. Verse 24 And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, we jumped into the middle of a sentence with and. So let's just kind of look back a little bit. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, a lot of phrases unfolding there, just as they went through the curtain to the holy of holies on the day of atonement to make a blood sacrifice, so Christ kind of carried out all those actions, but he didn't go through a real curtain uh, that was opened by his sacrifice on the cross. So since that is true, verse 19, since we have this confidence to enter, verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what is our response? Verse 22, let us draw near. And he explains that. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So that's our first response, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, our second response. That's a hope that's held without wavering. Why does our hope not waver? Well, because we're so faithful. No, no. Uh, We hold fast to our hope. Why? What does the text say? For he who promised is faithful. We're clinging to the faithfulness of God. And if you happen to establish a life of Christian faithfulness, it simply is a reflection of clinging to the faithfulness of our God. He is faithful. That's the great promise. So, since we have this confidence and since we have such a high priest, let us draw near, let us hold fast the confession, and verse 24 let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So based on these realities of the certainty of our faith, who our high priest is, our faithful God, this is how we live. We live with a confidence. 
We live with this hope and we live exhorting each other, encouraging each other, provoking each other to love and good works. In other words, my Christian life isn't just about me. Yes, I'm confident and I'm clinging to hope in my faithful God, but that means that I help others to get it right. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You remember the, uh, the verb provoke. Let us provoke one another to love and good works. So what do we make of this? There's a lot there with all those foundations and then let us conclusions. But we're looking at this last one, to stir up or to provoke to love and good works. We should first note that this needs to factor into our relationships this week. This is the essence of studying the one another's. It means I think, oh, I'm supposed to do this for others. And here it's provoke or to stir them up to good works, stir them up to loving God and to loving others. Who are you going to be around this week? Family, friends, church people, neighbors, maybe some kind of work acquaintances. The idea here is in in the Christian relationships we have, because you have a confidence of your faith and because you have a faithful God, you have certain responses this week. You draw near to God. You hold fast to the faithfulness of God and you stir up others to love that God and to serve him. That's your job description. You've not checked all the boxes. You've not been a faithful servant if you draw near to God and you cling to his faithfulness, but you never do anything for anyone else. Incomplete. It's it's partial work. It's just, it's invalid. You can no longer boast on drawing near to God when that had absolutely zero impact on anyone else. All of them shape the argument. Because of this, I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to draw near to God, but I'm going to help others do that. We see it in Ephesians 4. It's not, oh, here are these gifts and I'm equipped for ministry so that I will grow up into maturity in Christ. No, the the text labors with a couple extra words so that we all will come to a unity of the faith, to the fullness of the stature of Christ. It's a together project. That's the argument of this text. That's why we come here so often for the next verse, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we will argue from this text that you should gather together as God's people for worship. You shouldn't have uh, an ease of missing the gathered worship. This has nothing to do with taking a vacation and not being at church once in a while. It has everything to do with a heart that longs to be with the gathered worship of God's people. So let us hold fast our confession and let us consider how to stir up or provoke others to love and good works. It's a shepherding use of this word, a a switch that could prod or kind of tap the cattle. You, You can see this in... In tribes in Africa, they'll just have a long switch and a big old steer out there in the field, and they just kind of give them a little tap. The the stick isn't even hard enough to hurt the cow, but it doesn't need to be. They've just taught them to respond to a simple little guidance there. It could be a a sharper stick where it actually prods them, and so, you you know, you have these tasers now that'll prod the cattle and give them a zap, you know, and jolt them up down the path. If you don't have a sheepdog, you get a battery-powered taser and you get those cows going where they need to go. So there is is a sense of this could be gentle or this could be a little more pointed. Uh, The word could go either way, but it, it just, it's stirring up. It's like, come on, let's go. Sometimes that's all it takes. Sometimes it's the sheepdog nipping at heels and you gotta do it again and again. Good picture of parenting at times. It 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 takes a lot of work to show. What is the right path? But that's what we're to do. If we're drawing near to God and clinging to his faithfulness, 
then we will have that heart of God to help others do the same and will provoke each other to love and to good works. So not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging. These are, again, participles that describe our verb. We consider how to stir up one another. What are, how do we do that? By not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but by encouraging one another. Again, it's like we saw in Thessalonians, the contrast isn't, doesn't feel like apples to apples. Because he says, stir up each other by not neglecting to gather together, but instead by encouraging one another. And they look different, like not neglecting versus encouraging. But the reality is, they really are apples to apples. Because physical proximity isn't really the full essence of not neglecting. It's, it's hearts united around truth that is being talked about. So don't neglect uniting your hearts around truth, but instead, unite your hearts around truth. Encourage one another. Build each other up in truth. So we stir each other up to love and good works by being together and having conversations that ultimately lead us to how God's truth helps us get by day by day. So you might do this over coffee with one person. You might do it in a room of 12 ladies that gather for a Bible study. The men will gather Wednesday night, maybe 20 or 25 of them, and might not be as intimate of a group, but there's, there's going to be truth, and that's helpful, and there's encouragement that's gleaned from that. All those pictures work, and here we gather on a Sunday morning, uh, resurrection morning, and we're reminded of truth that is designed to, to stir us up. But what's interesting here is that the instruction of not neglecting to meet together, it's unfolding that verb of stirring up one another to love and good works. We usually just jump to verse 25, and we use it to kind of tell people you shouldn't miss church. Well, just remember, he's saying, you, having drawn near to God in full confidence, you, clinging to the faithfulness of God, you stir up others. And it's not if they come and ring your doorbell and ask questions. It's not if they come sit next to you at church. It's you do this by not neglecting being together. And I think the proneness here is that we can be thriving individually in our Christian life. We can be reading the word and getting through our week, but we're not initiating word conversations with others. We're neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Therefore, we're not encouraging one another, and all the more so as we see the day approaching. So the weight is is on the person who's saying, I'm trying to draw near to God. I'm trying to have hope in his faithfulness. I want to help others love God and serve him. Okay, well, that means you have to initiate it. It doesn't just happen. And his point is, there are many who think it's going to just happen, but they're neglecting meeting together, and talking about truth. Now, I'm not saying you can't ever talk about anything else. I'm just saying that it's not very hard to say, how's your day going? And to hear about things that sound practical, but they're actually, they they really are heart issues. They're affecting the spiritual. And so you you just can, in, in passing conversation, you can be spilling truth into those conversations that, Make this text work in your life. We need to hear from others. We need to be pursuing others. Yes, we hear from God. We draw near to him. We see his faithfulness. But then we provoke others to love and good works, and we do that by not neglecting them. And so think about what that would mean for you this week, to be an initiator of conversations about truth. And I know it may not always be meeting together physically. Um, Our schedules and our distance don't always allow that. 
But in our modern age of technology that can kind of facilitate togetherness, we're not going to put all our eggs in the basket of only technology, but it can serve us with connectivity. So let's, let's at least use that for truth in some small way. Again, I'm not saying every post you make has to be a quote from the Bible. I'm just saying, as you engage others this week, be thinking I'm supposed to stir them up to loving God and loving others and to doing good things, to living a righteous life. How can I just encourage that in any togetherness, in any connectivity? I think Paul reminds us of this in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, that's valid and you have to do that. You you have to be a responsible person fulfilling your roles, but don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So how can we provoke one another to love and good works? Uh, The Holy Spirit can help us with this. It's going to look different in every one of our lives this week. Uh, It may take on a little bit more of encouragement feel sometimes. It might be a little more exhortation. You might hear more of the encouragement this week. You might hear an exhortation. But what is the end goal? That you would look good to others? No. That we would all come to the unity of faith, to the mature sense of measuring up to the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's why God has given us all these one another's. And a couple of challenging ones today. Uh, The text in Thessalonians and Hebrews are both weighty texts. And yet when we boil it all down to the one another command, it's, it's not that complicated. Might be difficult, but it's not complicated. It's simple. It's clear. Um, And if it sounds daunting, then your task is to go to God, draw near to him, see him faithful, to make you everything you should be in the relationships God has put you in. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of Christ's coming, as we've seen that in several of our one another's. May May we be encouraged even today as we think of those who have died in the faith, as we think of our troubled world. Remind us that you are coming again. May we hear your words in Acts chapter 1 and be encouraged in our kingdom work. May we put our hand to the plow and and keep pressing on down that furrow. Lord, thank you for these texts in Hebrews. Of course, this letter steers us to the sufficiency of Christ, how he is better and best in every way. May we run the race this week with our eyes fixed on him, enduring, helping others to endure and receiving their help. May the study of the one and others bear fruit in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.